Amen. Let's go to Acts chapter 19 this morning. Acts chapter 19. And as we continue our study in the book of Acts, we'd like to direct our attention now to the first half of this chapter. Acts chapter 19 highlights the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the great city of Ephesus now that he has completed his vow and has gone to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 19 finds him returning to the city of Ephesus. And here in the city of Ephesus, we'll point out to you that this was a strategic city for the work of the ministry. It's located on the west side of the peninsula of Asia Minor, and it was a major trade route. And from Ephesus, many of the trading ships would come into the coast, and then out from Ephesus, many of the goods that were delivered would go into the interior, into the regions like Galatia and Colossae and Laodicea and some of those great cities that we read about in the New Testament. And so this became a place, the city of Ephesus, where Paul would minister for some two years, preaching the gospel, discipling, and of course, as he was discipling and training men, there were a number of men who went then from the city of Ephesus and spread across the region of Asia Minor, preaching the gospel. And I just want to point out to you that that was an area where Paul had wanted to go to preach the gospel, but God forbid him. Instead, he had gone over to Macedonia, but now that he's in Ephesus, God is allowing Paul's ministry to have a tremendous impact on that region of Asia Minor, though he himself is not personally going. He's training men in that strategic city, and they're going into these needy places. Now, as we see him establishing the ministry there in the city of Ephesus in what was a city of carnality and idolatry, God did a great work and many people were saved, we also find some elements of spiritual confusion. And it's important to note that whenever we see conversion taking place, so there's, there's the, the benefit or the blessing of people getting saved and their lives being changed, but inevitably we will also come across a lot of spiritual confusion. You may say, well, what is the source of spiritual confusion And just to put it simply and biblically, the source of all spiritual confusion is Satan, who wants to blind people's minds to the truth. And so he seeks to confuse, he seeks to distract, he seeks to draw people away from that which is true. And what we find in Acts chapter 19 is the Apostle Paul dealing with some elements of spiritual confusion. And as we read about what happened, I think it will help us as laborers in the Lord's fields now. So let's look at Acts chapter 19. Direct your attention there to verse number 1. The scripture says this, It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, 
John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds." Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now certainly in the midst of an effective ministry, we'll see people getting saved, genuinely converted. But we'll also run across some things which require a great deal of discernment and spiritual discretion in order to deal with them wisely and properly for the furtherance of the gospel. And Acts 19 details some of these things for us. And I want to share with you some thoughts this morning which may be a help to you as you labor for the Lord. Notice with me, first of all, in the first seven verses, that as we're laboring for the Lord, we need to be careful to watch for confusion about the gospel. This is significant. It's important. Because today we may have a a tendency, if we're talking with folks, and somebody says to us, well, I'm a Christian. And sometimes we would say, well, oh, okay, they must be a true believer in Christ. They must understand the gospel. They must be in agreement with, the, with biblical doctrine. But we would be more wise if we were cautious and if we asked the question, what do you mean by a Christian? Because a lot of people may use the term Christian in simply a cultural sense. They may use it in a sense of, well, I was 
raised in a Christian home, or I'm a religious person, or I'm a churchgoer, but not, they may not necessarily know what it means to be a Christian in the biblical sense. And maybe even you're here this morning and you don't know what it means to be a Christian in the biblical sense. And I'll assure you this morning that it has much more to do with a real relationship with the living God than it does with some kind of a title that you claim for yourself because of the country or the family that you grew up in. So we've got to be careful about confusion in regards to the gospel. Some men are described for us here in the first seven verses. There's 12 men, and Paul comes across these fellows and And evidently, these men said, we're disciples. And he said, oh, well, that's great. That's that's wonderful to hear. And so he asked them, have you received the Holy Ghost? And their answer gave him pause because they said, Holy Ghost? We haven't heard anything about the Holy Ghost. We, We didn't know there was any such thing as the Holy Ghost. Right at that moment, Paul's spiritual radars went up. And he realized, okay, here could be somebody who is making a claim, but they don't actually know what that means. I I find this to be true about many people's social media tags. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a Bible believer. Oh, good. Let me read your posts. Wait a second. Something's not adding up. The title isn't matching what's coming from out of your mouth. So Paul's listening. He says, oh, what do, you, what do you mean by this? I'm curious about what's going on. And these men then, when he, when he asked them about the Holy Ghost and they answered in that way, then he said to them, unto what then were you baptized? If you're disciples, what were you baptized unto? And they said unto him, well, we were baptized unto John's baptism. Now, I want to pause for a moment and point out to you that it's very unlikely that they were baptized by John himself. That, that the passage is pretty clear here that these individuals were baptized. They, they didn't say we were baptized by John. They said we were baptized unto John's baptism. And John's baptism was distinct. It was, it was unique and different, but... It's likely that these men, instead of being baptized by John himself, that they were perhaps baptized by somebody who was mimicking John's ministry, but didn't necessarily have all the details of the message figured out, which is what we're going to see here in just a minute. And so they were, I think, sincere. They really wanted to be right with God, and they were willing to do whatever it was that God wanted them to do. And so they had been baptized, thinking, well, that's what God would want, and that's what we should do. And and I want to propose to you this morning that it would be fairly common for us to find people like this today. People who have heard some sort of a message of religious attainment or Uh, If you do this, then you could have a relationship with God. And so they have, in the sincerity of their heart, they have done that. And they've tried to be right with God, but they're really confused about the true message of the gospel, which is what we find with these men, that they were confused 
about the message of the gospel. Many people in the world around us today, religious people, have a confused sense of truth because of confused teaching that they have received. And it's not really their fault in the sense that they simply have heard teaching which has caused confusion in their mind. And some of these people, like the 12 men in this passage, are true seekers after God and would respond positively if they could hear the message of the true gospel. See, sometimes we hear somebody say, well, I'm such and such a religion, or I go to such and such a church, or I have such and such a belief, and we immediately think, well, okay, they're probably, they're probably content in that, and, and they probably wouldn't be interested in the truth. But you might be surprised how many of them, if you showed them from the Bible what the truth of the gospel is, how many of them might say, oh, I've been mistaken. I, I assumed that I knew the truth, but I had an incomplete knowledge. Now, you'll notice what Paul does in verse 4. Paul then, he said, well, if you were baptized unto John's baptism, did you know that John preached about the baptism of repentance and that he told people they should believe on the name of the one who was coming after him, they should believe on Jesus Christ. Now, it's clear in the passage, these men had never heard of Jesus Christ. And this was the key element that they were missing. So they, they had a desire to be right with God. They had a desire to serve the Lord, but they were missing the message, the saving message, which is the way to be right with God. Do you know today that people cannot be saved apart from Jesus Christ? Amen. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, it's impossible for them to be saved. And let me point out, the Jesus Christ they need to believe in is the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Right. Not the Jesus Christ of popular culture, right. but the Jesus Christ of the Bible, the one who is revealed by God. Yep. So Paul is careful to emphasize Christ. And I want to remind you that if you and I are careful to put the emphasis on Christ and on the truth of the gospel, then it is likely that some confused people will be saved. Amen. That they will say... I had not realized that was the truth. I had not realized that was the way of salvation. Perhaps in their mind, they were depending on church membership or their good works or uh, being a part of some denomination or uh, some other religious work that they were doing. And when you show them plainly from the scriptures that the way of salvation is Jesus, some of these people will say, I, I wish I would have known this sooner. I, I didn't understand this. I want to be right with God. Which is what happened in verse number 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's my contention that these men had not yet become disciples until this point. Even though they claimed to be disciples, they had some gaps of knowledge which were preventing them from having a real relationship with God. And Paul discerned that. He saw that there was a need. He preached the complete gospel to them and pointed them to Jesus Christ. And the response of these men was, that's what we've been missing. You know, sometimes, and this has happened to me as I've dealt with people, sometimes people will say to you, this is what I've been looking for all this time. I remember uh, a fellow that I was dealing with several years ago, and he had kind of a, a, a mixed up kind of religion. He was a little bit of 
Muslim and a little bit of Christian and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, and as we studied through the scriptures and I showed him what the Bible said about the way of salvation, I'll never forget, as I like to say, the lights came on. And he started to realize that what he had believed before, though it was sincere, it was incomplete. And I remember the, the day when we finished the Bible study and he looked across the table at me and he said, I want to do that. Amen. I want to be saved. I want to call on the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. Amen. And so we came, actually, it was, it was Christmas Eve when we were doing that study and we came right in here in the auditorium and he knelt right here at this, at this step wow. and he cried out to the Lord and he, he asked the Lord to save him. And uh, he's with the Lord Amen. today. He's already passed away. He's with the Lord But I'm thankful that I was able to sit down with the Bible and clear up the confusion that he had about salvation. So as we're laboring for the Lord, we need to be sensitive to the fact, be careful to watch for confusion about the gospel. Not everybody who claims to be a Christian is actually a Christian. And, And I know that sounds, to some people, that sounds judgmental, but there is an element of judgment that is a part of discernment. And if we're going to be wise in how we present the gospel, we need to realize that it is possible for people to make a claim which they don't fully understand. And some of those people are very sincere and they really want to be right with God. And if we would be bold enough to press past their initial claim and declare to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, we might find that some of those folks are interested in being saved. The evidence of their salvation was displayed in verse number 6 as the Holy Ghost came upon them and they exhibited the sign of tongues and prophecy. And I'll just point out to you once again as we have on our way through the book of Acts, these were temporary signs which were given for the validation of the ministry of the apostles before the completion of the New Testament. And that's exactly what was happening here. It was an obvious demonstration of the fact that these men had now been saved. But the reason they got saved is because Paul was careful enough to deal with them carefully about the gospel and not just accept their initial claim without digging deeper and finding out where they were really coming from. So be careful to watch for confusion about the gospel. Many people around us in our society are confused about the gospel. Many people will say, I believe the gospel. I believe in Jesus. I am a Christian. But if you listen and you ask a lot of questions and let them talk, you'll find out that what they mean by that is that they believe you need to earn your salvation through good works or through being a part of a denomination or some other means of salvation. So learn to be discerning, be careful. The second truth that I see in this passage in verses 8 through 12 is that you and I should be conscious of the difference in responses. Not everyone will respond to the gospel in the same way. So after this happened, and this is right at the beginning of Paul coming to the city of Ephesus, Paul began to go into the synagogue there in Ephesus, and the Bible says he spake boldly in the synagogue for three months. So this is, this is his mode of operation. This is how Paul did things. He went in the synagogue, he began to boldly declare about Jesus Christ, and he would take the Old Testament, and then he would talk about 
how Jesus had fulfilled those prophecies and how Jesus must be the the Messiah that had been promised. And he did this for three months on the Sabbath days in the synagogue. And he was, it says he's disputing and persuading. So there's some amount of back and forth, some discussion that's going back and forth about Jesus Christ and why he is the one who who we should be looking for. But now notice verse 9 and the diversity of response. Because now, after three months of gospel preaching in the synagogue, it says in verse 9, When divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. So notice there's two responses to the gospel. One is there's a response of hardness, and the other is there's a response of openness and seeking after the gospel. So let's think about the response of hardness. Whether we like it or not, not everybody is going to respond to the message of the gospel. And the truth is that sometimes you'll preach the gospel to people and they will see it clearly for what it is. They'll, they'll recognize it and they'll say, I don't want that. I don't agree with that. I'm not going to go that way. That's not for me. Now we can pray for them that down the road, God will soften their heart and they'll come back. But understand that when someone is hardened to the gospel, that is a result of their response to turn away from the truth that has been given to them. So when truth is given, we have to make a response towards that truth. And that response when truth is given is we should be open to that truth. Sometimes people get discouraged in the work of God because they find that people will reject the gospel and they'll be hard to the gospel. And that is a hard thing to see, especially if the person that that is becoming hardened is somebody that you love, maybe, maybe a relative or a friend or a loved one, and, and you, you don't want to see that in their life. But understand that this does happen. Sometimes people become hardened to the gospel, and they, they tend to pull away and dispute against Christ and the gospel. In contrast to that are those who became disciples. And Paul separated them out from the synagogue And he brought them over to this place at the school of Tyrannus. But there were obviously a number of people. And repeatedly now, then for two years, Paul would find that many people were becoming followers of Jesus Christ. The, The church at Ephesus is one of the powerhouse churches of the New Testament. This is a place where many people were genuinely converted and where they were discipled and where the word of God went forth powerfully. And this is a remarkable thing. When we see God working in this way and we see a multitude of people becoming disciples of Jesus Christ, what is the mark of a disciple? Well, someone who becomes a follower of Jesus is eager to learn more. They want to know what it means to be a follower of Christ. They want to see from the scriptures what it means to to follow after him. And that's what happened with these disciples. In fact, the Bible says that Paul was giving this kind of instruction in the school of Tyrannus, probably a public building owned by a man named Tyrannus, kind of like a school building or something that we would think of today, that Paul would rent or was given the the use of for the purpose of teaching and giving instruction in the things of the Lord. And so for two years, this group of disciples is meeting there And Paul is pouring his life into them and he's seeing that they are growing. And then the result of that growth 
in verse 10 is that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And I don't want to spend too much time here in verse 10, but one of the marks of a real disciple is that they're eager for others to share in their understanding of what they have learned about Jesus Christ. And, and this is exactly what happened in the city of Ephesus as these individuals became disciples and really Paul invested in their lives, then they began to see, hey, there's a lot of places where this message has not been preached and I need to go and be a part of of spreading that message. And it's so remarkable what is said in verse 10 that all they which dwelt in Asia, now Asia is a big area, all they that dwelt in Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the gospel as a result of what happened in Ephesus. What's significant about this is, this is God's plan for a New Testament church. A church is not primarily a place that we invite people to so they can hear the gospel. A church is primarily a place where we invest in teaching people how to take the gospel, and then we, as members of the church, go out into the world and we go with the gospel. We take the gospel to those who do not know. And that's exactly what happened in Ephesus. And this was a fruitful field. This was a place where God was doing a great work. We ought to pray that God would make our church this kind of a fruitful field. This kind of a place where discipleship would take place and where the gospel would go forth from here. And as I've already pointed out to you, this was the location was strategic for this kind of ministry because all of these roads went out from Ephesus to all these parts of Asia Minor and people were able to travel and share the message of the gospel. And we know from other parts of the New Testament that a lot of other people got saved and a lot of other churches were established during this time because of Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. So, Understand, we need to be careful to watch for confusion about the gospel. Second of all, we need to be conscious of the differences of response. Sometimes we get discouraged by those who reject the gospel, but remember that there are people who will receive the gospel. There will be people who will eagerly take the gospel for themselves and then will become part of the workforce in sharing the gospel with others. A third thought that I want you to see now in verses 13 through 20 is that we need to be cautious of claims to spiritual power. And this is an unusual paragraph here from verses 13 through 20. It's it's an interesting story. And it's set in the context of the apostolic powers that were given to Paul. So again, this is a season of signs. The, The New Testament has not yet been completed. God has given to Paul special miraculous abilities to heal sickness and to call demons to come out of people. This is a very unique thing that is not necessarily given to all of us. We can't go around and get the, the, the handkerchiefs or the aprons from people who are sick and say, be healed and anticipate that God is going to heal those people. Neither should we be so foolish as to approach someone that we think is demon-possessed and try to do something that people call an exorcism and to somehow do some dramatic thing to cast that demon out. That's not wise. Paul had that kind of power, but understand, by the way, there is a way to deal 
with both sickness and evil spirits for us in this time. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But I want, to, I want you to see the folly of this kind of claim to spiritual power when there is no spiritual power. So there's seven brothers who are the sons of a fellow named Sceva, who is the chief of the priests. So these guys have some kind of a claim to a religious genealogy, and they think pretty highly of themselves. And the Bible says that they are exorcists. So I guess they've made it their practice to go around and confront evil spirits and do something with them. And they saw what Paul was doing, and they thought, now that's clever, and it's very powerful. We ought to try that. So they went and they found a guy who is demon-possessed and they tried to do what Paul was doing and they said to this evil spirit that's in this guy, they commanded the spirit to come out of this guy in the name of Jesus. And this is where they said, "Uh uh-oh. Because the evil spirit said to them, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. Who are you? Why are you talking to me? And then, of course, the result is, and it's a little bit humorous, actually, that that this man jumps up and begins to assault these seven men, and they run out of that house naked and wounded, embarrassed, because why? They claimed to have power that they didn't actually have. And I want to point out to you that it is a very dangerous thing to claim to have power that you do not have. It's not wise to mess with the spiritual world and think that because you have some kind of knowledge of the scriptures that you are equipped to handle those spiritual powers. You actually need the power of the risen Christ. And I I point out to you, and and after this happened, the result was in verse 18 that many people as they heard about what happened, they became afraid. And and they recognized the difference between Paul and these seven sons of Sceva. And they said, that guy Paul and what he's preaching is true. We need to learn more about this. And so many of them began to come and they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they began to say, We need to change our lives. We need to do something that's different. Now, Ephesus was a center of idolatry and witchcraft. And so these individuals who were saved, part of what they did was they brought those pieces of their former life and they got rid of them in a very dramatic fashion. It was costly to them. It was very public. It was something that was seen by all those in the community. And actually, it's going to cause a great deal of trouble among the false teachers and the idolaters in town in short order. But understand that these people, now they have experienced real spiritual power. Real spiritual power comes from God. Now, you might be tempted when you read this passage to right away become very afraid of the power of Satan. And I want to point out to you that, of course, Satan is powerful. He's a great deceiver and, and he's... He's deceived, well, at one point, all of us were under his spell before we met Christ. And and sometimes people can get in the place where they just quake in fear at the power of Satan. But I want to remind you that the Bible says, greater is he that is in you 
than he that is in the world. And you say, well, how do we deal today with evil spirits? Because certainly there is such a thing as, as evil spirits today, and certainly Satan is at work in the world deceiving, and, and, and sometimes there's dramatic displays of his ability and his power that people will be, will be able to see, and that can be confusing to people. You say, how should I deal with someone, if I, if I should think that there's a demonic influence in their life, what should I do? Well, the Bible says, ye shall know the truth, and the truth Amen. shall set you free. Amen. And I want to point out to you that the very best way to deal with the power of Satan is with the truth of God. Because what we find in the scriptures is that Satan's power is all wrapped up in lies. It's all wrapped up in deception. And the way to expose that deception is simply the truth. You say, so what should I do with somebody that I believe is influenced by demonic power? Well, you should talk to them about the scriptures. You should read the scriptures to them. You should reason with them from the scriptures. If they are going to be set free, they will be set free by the power of Jesus Christ and the power of the written word of God. This nonsense of going and acting like you have some kind of dramatic power to call out demons and send them. And we see this in some church organizations today, these dramatic displays. It is exactly that. It is nonsense. What God wants us to do is deal according to the truth of God. This is not about trying to get some kind of a name for ourselves or to show that we have some kind of spiritual power. This is to point to Jesus and show that Jesus has the power to deliver. He is able to deliver thee. All right, so notice we should be cautious of claims to spiritual power. No doubt you have been, uh, you, have, you have heard the claims of people who've, who have said, well, I have this power or that power. Today we have religious teachers who claim to have the power to heal sickness they claim they have the power to cast out demons. They, they claim they have the power to do all of these sorts of things. And, and I, I think most of you are aware, but if you're not, you should be, that much of that is just religious fraud. Amen. Much of that is nothing more than chicanery and sleight of hand for the purpose of promoting themselves and especially getting money from the people who try to follow after them. And in the cases where there is some kind of real spiritual power, I propose to you that that real spiritual power is not originating from God. But that real spiritual power is coming from another source. And we ought to be careful about the claims that people make to spiritual power. Now notice that as people saw the difference between the preaching of the truth and real spiritual power, and these false claims to spiritual power, and people got saved, and they began to follow and, and, and make a decided emphasis on their desire to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, notice the result in verse number 20. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And this is the hallmark of a ministry that is glorifying to God. It is a ministry that is built on, thus saith the Lord. A ministry that puts the emphasis on what God has declared. You know, all of us should be reminded that God can use whoever he wants, however he wants. But one thing that we know about what God does in his work is he always exalts Jesus 
and he always exalts the word of God. Amen. Always. And so we ought to be careful, and we ought to be asking God, would you help us so that we could be the kind of ministry where the word of God will grow and be prevailed, where the word of God will be effective in people's lives, because God's word still changes lives. God's word is still true. His word is still powerful. His word is still sufficient. And this morning I declare to you that his word is what ought to be the center focus of everything that we say and do as a New Testament church. So in the work of ministry, be careful to watch for confusion about the gospel and make sure to clarify that. Be conscious of the differences of response. Don't let yourself be discouraged if some people are hard to the gospel and others are open to the gospel. And be very cautious about claims to spiritual power, either of making those claims yourself or of following after somebody who makes those claims of spiritual power. Make sure that what you are following is the truth as revealed in the Word of God. And I believe that if we're careful about these things... God will bless our ministry in the same way that God blessed Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. Wouldn't it be remarkable if Lehigh Valley Baptist Church could be like the church at Ephesus and could see many people go to diverse parts of our country and of the world declaring the word of God and seeing other people saved and churches established? Wouldn't it be remarkable to be a part of that work? And I believe that's what God wants for us as a church.